chapter 1, verses 22 to 28, is our first reading this morning. Picking up in the middle here of this uh, vision, Ezekiel's vision, uh, first of the four figures, and then uh, now here in uh, 22 to 28, the the division of, of the divine glory. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22, this is God's inspired and infallible word. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spreading out over their heads. Under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one had two wings, its body on one side, covering its body rather on one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of, an, of abundant waters as they went like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like a lapsus lazuli in appearance. And on that, which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. I noticed from the appearance of his loins upward something like glowing metal that looked like a fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire And there was a radiance around him. In the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, rather as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Revelation 10, verses 1 through 4, is our text this morning. Uh, We're going to be reading in chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. Rather, 9 through 16. Revelation 1, beginning at verse 9, I, John, your, fellow, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, two, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Revelation 10, beginning at verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little scroll, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea, and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please, as we turn to our hymn of preparation, 138. Our Lord and our God, we praise you for your word seven times a day, O Lord. We will praise you for your word, for its excellence, for the revelation that you've given in it of our Lord Jesus Christ, and for this revelation of Christ. In the apocalypse, in the revelation of John, we pray, O Lord, as we consider uh, the deep things of this book, that you would give us insight and understanding by the help of your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge our ignorance. We acknowledge our need for the Spirit's illumination. We ask that you would be pleased to grant that to us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It's been a minute or two since we've been together in the book of Revelation. So let me reorient you as to where we were uh, when we last were together in this, uh, in this book. We're, we're picking up in the, in the midst of the third of, uh, in the seven cycles of visions in Revelation. The, the first vision, the first cycle is a vision of Christ and the seven churches in chapters 1 through 3. Uh, the second cycle of visions uh, is uh, the 
seven seals in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 1. The third of the seven trumpets in chapters 8, 2, through verses 11, 19, the end of chapter 11. That's where we find ourselves uh, this morning as we take up our exposition, uh, exposition of, of Revelation again. And recall that the opening of uh, the seventh seal in connection with the introduction of the seven trumpets in chapter 8 and verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 links these two cycles, uh, the cycle of the uh, seals and the cycle of the trumpets together. The seals, uh, these, these visions of the seals that God gave to John, especially the, the first four feature factors that uh, we saw at, at work, uh, we've seen at work already in the first six trumpets, in the trumpet judgments, the, first, the, the four horsemen uh, in, of the apocalypse uh, depicted in uh, the first four seals symbolize armed conflict, famine, pestilence, uh, bringing death with them. All of these are reiterated in the vision of the seven trumpets, culminating in the horrific visions of demonic armies and their destructive forces that we last dealt with in the fifth and sixth trumpets there in chapter 9. So the seven trumpets serve to intensify the terrors of the great day of judgment that John saw in the seal visions in order to make a more profound impression on the apostle, the apostle and uh, the seven churches to, to which these, uh, the, the, the letters are, are being sent and uh, to uh, John's readers uh, of that day and a more profound profession uh, uh, impression on us, and also to show that these judgments are ordained by God. There's a lot of reiteration in the book of Revelation. And so uh, we're being shown here that God is at work in these judgments. These things are ordained by God's hand. And they're going to come to pass shortly. Uh, that's part of the purpose of uh, the, the reiteration in the book of Revelation. These are warning blasts. The trumpets are warning blasts to the church of John's day. Now, Revelation makes significant use of intermissions or interludes in the unfolding of the seven seals and uh, the seven trumpets. Just as Revelation 7 uh, presents an, uh, an interlude between the opening of the sixth and seventh seals, so Revelation 10 
as a part of the interlude between, uh, is a part of the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. So, uh, in the process of this revelation, as these judgments are building up, there's a delay. It heightens the tension as we wait for the, the final installment of these uh, visionary sequences. And it helps us to step back and put these things in proper perspective. In the interlude after the, the first six seals, uh, in chapter 7, John was shown how God sealed his church for salvation and delivered her safely out of the tribulation described in that, the, the first six seals. Remember, that's the sealing of the 144,000 of uh, from the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 tribes represent all of God's elect in Israel and, by extension, all of the church, of all the elect of, of the church of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And now, the, uh, with respect to the trumpets, uh, the, the interlude here in uh, chapter 10 is a welcome relief from these horrible visions of the demonic armies, the, these visions that paint a picture of, uh, for us of the work of Satan and his uh, minions that we've seen in the fifth and the sixth trumpets in chapter 9. And so chapter 10 assures us that though Satan rages... Christ reigns, and his kingdom will come according to God's decreed plan. Though Satan rages, Christ reigns, and his kingdom will come according to God's decreed plan. Revelation 10 centers on the descent of a glorious figure from heaven called the strong angel or the mighty angel. We could translate this either way, bringing with him a little scroll. We're going to look at these first four verses. Uh, in the first place, we'll see the strong angel's identity. We want to know who this strong angel is. And then secondly, the strong angel's power. The strong angel's identity and power. So then first, the strong angel's identity here in verse 1. Everything about the description of the strong angel of Revelation 10 leads us to the conclusion that this can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, though some interpreters disagree. Recall that in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord or the, or the angel of Jehovah is a theophany or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in human form in the Old Testament economy 
of redemption. We see the angel of the Lord in many places in the Old, in the Old Testament, but uh, the, the angel of the Lord figures prominently, in, uh, for example, in the book of Exodus, uh, as he appears to Moses, as, as uh, the, the Lord is, is uh, as, as Moses is pleading with the Lord for the angel to, to go before them. This is the angel of Jehovah. Uh, he's also called the angel of uh, the name uh, because he is the angel of Jehovah. He's also called the angel of uh, the presence uh, because it, the angel of the Lord was God's presence in, in the midst uh, of Israel. And that's why uh, Moses was pleading so fervently with the Lord uh, to, that the angel wouldn't just go before them, but he'd go with them, that he would be in their midst to, to be uh, with them in the conquest of the land. Now, the word angel could also be and is translated messenger. Uh, the word that we find here in, in our text is, it can also be translated messenger, is translated messenger elsewhere uh, in the New Testament. And we noted uh, in our exposition of John's vision uh, of the seven churches to Asia in chapters 2 and 3 uh, that uh, John is writing these letters to the angels or to the messengers of the seven churches, which I argued as we were uh, in, in the exposition of those letters, uh, that John was writing to the ministers of those seven churches. It's, it's not as though each church had a special angel that was appointed over, over it. The prophecy of, of Malachi uh, in chapter 3 and verse 1 calls Jesus the messenger of the covenant and uh, the, the word translated messenger there is the, the Hebrew word for angel. So just like in the New Testament, the, the, the Greek for, uh, for angel is sometimes translated messenger. So in the, in the Old Testament, the, the Greek sometimes, sometimes translated uh, angel, sometimes translated uh, messenger. That this strong angel... Here in Revelation 10.1 is the messenger of the covenant spoken of in Malachi 3.1, uh, the angel of Jehovah spoken of in the Old Testament is clear enough when the angel's description is compared with that of Christ in that section in Revelation 1 that we read this morning and of God on his throne in Ezekiel 28, uh, Ezekiel 1, 20, 25 through 28. But there are further indications of his divine identity here in verse 1 uh, of chapter 10 in Revelation. In the first place, John saw him coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud. Now God, remember, is the one who descended from heaven in the glory cloud upon the tabernacle and the temple in, uh, in the Old Testament. And God is the only one who is said to be clothed with his 
creation. Uh, in uh, Psalm 104, uh, verses 1 and 2, we, read this, uh, we sang this this morning. Uh, we read it, too, in our call to worship. Uh, that psalm says that God is clothed with splendor and majesty, covering himself with light as a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. No created angel could be said to be clothed with a cloud. Second, the rainbow is, uh, was upon his head. We've, we've seen the rainbow already in, in, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 3 in this description uh, of, uh, here in Revelation of, the thro- of God's throne. And it also fits the description uh, of, uh, of Ezekiel when, uh, when, when that, that description of the glorious one that he saw. He saw one enthroned in heaven. Uh, there was a radiance around him as the appearance, uh, appearance of a rainbow in the clouds uh, on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Uh, such was the, imper- the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he's coming at, down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, the rainbows on his head. And then third, uh, his face was like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. This fits the description of Christ in Revelation 1, uh, verses 15 and 16, John writes, his face was shining like the sun in its strength. Um, remember as well, in Matthew 17, 2, the, the account of Christ's transfiguration, the gospel writer says his face shone like the sun. Jesus is the sun of righteousness. Uh, that comes uh, there in Malachi's uh, prophecy, chapter 4 and verse 2. Uh, the sunrise from on high, he's called, Luke 1, And then recall, too, that in that vision in, uh, that God gives to John in chapter 1 and verse 15, John says his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. We see, we see more evidence leaking this, uh, linking this uh, strong angel to, to Christ as we move on in the text, but uh, enough information is supplied just in verse 1 to demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that this cloud-clothed, rainbow-haloed, sunshine-faced, fiery-footed, strong angel coming down out of heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to move on secondly then to this strong angel's power. We see his power symbolized first in the little scroll that was open in his hand here in verse 2. Now some think that the scrolls in chapters 5, uh, remember the scroll in chapter 5, was in the hand of the one sitting on the seat on the throne. Uh, some think that, that, that these two scrolls are, uh, are identical here in, in, uh, in 5 and in chapter 10. But the fact that John uses a different word in 
in the Greek for the scroll here in chapter 5, identify this scroll as uh, a smaller scroll and its contents, therefore, as more specific. We said that that scroll in, in uh, chapter 5 contained uh, that the contents of that scroll were uh, the decrees of God concerning judgment and redemption. The little scroll in the angel's hand seems to be more specifically oriented to the book of Revelation uh, itself, which you remember is how this prophecy began. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must take place, he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So down from heaven comes this strong angel. The Lord Jesus Christ descends from heaven. And he has the, the little scroll. He has this portion of Holy Scripture in his hand. It's the revelation of John. The, John, the, the, the revelation that, he's, uh, that, that he is passing on to John in order that John uh, might in turn write these things uh, we, we read and deliver it to the churches as we read this morning there in chapter 1. Uh, and so, this is the revelation of, of Jesus Christ. Christ is, in Revelation, revealing, uh, this is his self-revelation. The, this, this little scroll isn't closed, but it's open. It's not sealed, uh, but it's It's open. Revelation is the gospel of Jesus Christ in symbols. And Paul says uh, that the gospel is God's powerhouse for salvation. Next we see the strong angel's power symbolized in his posture, he placed one his, his left foot on the sea, his right foot, uh, right foot rather on the sea, his left foot on uh, the land. Now, sea in sea and land in the Old Testament is uh, a formula for the totality of earthly things, everything uh, on the earth. And so, the imagery here is of a mighty ruler whose dominion is over land and sea. And what a magnificent picture this is of Christ's comprehensive, sovereign lordship over the earth and all that's on it, over the sea and all that's in it. The angel's posture indicates his enormous power and his mission to the world. Remember uh, Jesus prior to his uh, ascension, after his re resurrection, prior to his 
ascension said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 19. And remember, too, that in the Old Testament, placing a foot upon something is an act of conquest and possession. In Joshua chapter 10, Joshua calls for the men of Israel to put their feet on the necks of the five kings that they had defeated. Like Joshua, Christ proclaims the conquest of his enemies by putting his foot upon them. He puts the foot on all who defy him to show uh, their subjection to him. This is what David prophesied of his greater son in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus, the strong angel, with his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, towers above this rebellious world to show that all the nations of the earth are subject to him, claiming the kingdoms of the world for himself. And finally, we see the strong angel's power symbolized in the loud voice with which he cried out as when a lion roars, verse 3. The lion-like attribute of uh, Christ's voice reminds us of, of the response of one of the 24 elders to John in chapter 5 and, and verse 5. John, who wept when it was revealed that no one was able to open or look into the scroll in the right hand of the one on the throne. And the elder said to John, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. So here in chapter 10, the strong angel is likened to the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's linked to Christ, the root of David, who is triumphant, the same Christ who in the opening of uh, the first seal uh, in chapter 6 and verse 3 is characterized as, uh, pictured for us as the victorious rider on the white horse with his war bow who went out conquering and to conquer. And when the strong angel roars with a loud voice, and you hear that, uh, uh, you hear, uh, uh, you, you heard that in uh, Ezekiel's vision, uh, 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 the, the glory, the, the glory, the glorified one, uh, the glory of heaven, and uh, the throne of God in, in heaven. Uh, you hear this in uh, the description of Christ there in Revelation chapter 1, uh, there's a a loud voice and there's the sound of many waters and 
And here we have another loud voice, and following the loud voice, there are these seven peals of thunder. They're, they're described as uttering their voices here in, uh, in verse 3. Now, John has been told to write these things that are being revealed to him. That's what, that's what, that's what Jesus said. That's what the voice said to, to, to Jesus. Uh, he heard uh, behind him a loud voice like a trumpet this time saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. So when the peals of thunder utter their voices, he immediately begins to write. Verse 4. Yet he's forbidden from doing so in this case. The message of the seven peals was for John's ears only. It wasn't intended for the church at large. But what's important here is that God wanted John to record the fact that he wasn't supposed to reveal what the seven thunders said. God wanted the church to know that there are some things, many things, actually, that the Lord has no intention of revealing to us. And this serves as a rebuke to the tendency of many sermons and commentaries on the book of Revelation, that of curious searching into things that God has not seen fit to reveal. That familiar verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God but things revealed to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. In other words, God has given us his law. He's told us we must obey his law. And he's told us what the consequences of Disobedience and obedience are. And that's what we need to know, says the Holy Spirit through Moses. To this point, one theologian has written, man is more often prompted by curiosity than obedience. Man is more often prompted by curiosity than obedience. For every question a pastor receives about the details of God's law, the practical application of God's word, he normally receives several which express little more than curiosity about God, the life to come, and other things which are aspects of the secrets which belong to God. Against curiosity and a probing 
about secret things, we're plainly commanded to obey God's law and to recognize that the law gives us a knowledge of the future which is legitimate in the things that God has revealed. So here, John has said, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken. Do not write them. That that means they must be secret things. Things not to be revealed. Things that God doesn't intend to reveal to us. Things that we might be curious about. things, Things we might like to know because we're curious people. But God hasn't intended to reveal these things. Now in the final chapter, chapter 22, in verse 10 here in Revelation, John is commanded, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. What time is near? Well, the time that, of judgment that, that John has spoken of. That, that, the time of judgment that's coming in the, in the first century, for the first century church, that time is coming. It's near, John says. The message of the book of Revelation as a whole is contemporary in nature. Referring to events about to take place. In contrast, the message of the seven peals of thunder point us to the distant future. The parallel in Daniel's prophecy, chapter 12 and verse 4, lends understanding here. Daniel was told, remember, to conceal these words and seal up the book until the time of the end for the reason that the time of its fulfillment was not at hand. Similarly, when John is instructed to seal up the words spoken by the seven thunders, it means that the time of the fulfillment of these words was not at hand. This is a, a yet another indication that the primary purpose for which revelation was given was not futuristic. And so we're taught, therefore, two things here. First, the book of Revelation is primarily a contemporary prophecy concerned almost entirely with the eschatological or the last day's events of the first century. Second, the events of the first century weren't exhaustive of eschatology, the study of the last things. Contrary to some interpreters who, who believe that the, that the fall of Jerusalem constituted the second coming of Christ, the end of the world, the final resurrection, that's yet to come. And that's clear from uh, the final chapters of 
Revelation. But this book is a contemporary book. And if it wasn't a contemporary book, can you imagine uh, the first century church trying to sift through this prophecy and apply it to their uh, daily lives? Now, we can apply it even though it's uh, thousands of years later. Because as I've said to you often, uh, even, even as, we were, as I was dealing with Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, I've said to you that these judgments, uh, the, the, the judgment that came upon Jerusalem in 70 AD, the events that led up to that, uh, these, uh, these temporal judgments uh, that God brought, including the old covenant judgments, that, that God brought upon Israel, where uh, apocalyptic language was uses, uh, used. Rather, these, these are microcosms of the macrocosmic final judgment of the world. And these are given to us, the judgments of Revelation are given to us to prepare us, to warn us that judgment is coming. Some of those judgments are in this life. Some of those temporal judgments we experience, they're they're, uh, judgments uh, not of damnation, not of judgment, uh, not of of, uh, eternal damnation, not of punishment, uh, their judgments of discipline, their judgments of chastisement. God does that in our Christian experience. But there is a judgment coming. And there's a sense in which the Christian experience is, uh, the whole of the Christian experience is a preparation for the, that coming judgment at the final return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Bible calls us to do in preparation is to pursue holiness. Is to pursue sanctification without which, the writer of Hebrews says, no one We'll see the Lord. So in these interludes between the judgments of the seven seals and uh, the sixth and seventh uh, uh, seals and the sixth and seventh trumpets, God gives the church exactly what they need. In, in that, in that uh, there in, in, in chapter 7, in the sealing of the 144,000, uh, the great assurance that God would deliver his church out of the great tribulation, that was great comfort to God's people in that day. It's great comfort to us because we, we are assured thereby that God will deliver us out of our tribulations and ultimately out of the greatest of all tribulations. And then here in this interlude, we are assured 
We are given soothing balm for our souls. Those first six trumpets announce the destruction of the land with its vegetation, the sea with its creatures. They show us those terrifying visions of demonic forces aligned against the world and against God's people in chapter 9. And in this interlude, God gives them this vision of the strong angel, the angel of the Lord. Another vision of the mighty Christ himself, standing with one foot on the sea and the other on the land, towering over the world, totally sovereign, powerfully conquering the forces of evil. When we hear about horrid things in this world, wars and and threats of wars, the proliferation of of evil in murders and kidnappings and uh, civil unrest, the destructive forces of tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, and, and wildfires, we must remember and for that matter, when we, when we experience the, the turmoil of our lives and Satan's temptations, when Satan attacks us, we must remember that Jesus, the strong angel, towers over everything, all things are under his feet. All is under his control. The big things are under his control. And the little things of your life are under his control. Isaac Watts expressed this truth wonderfully in his hymn based on Psalm 72. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our strong angel, the angel of Jehovah. The one who is present with us to deliver us. And so, O Lord, we will bless you at all times, and our praise will continually be in our mouths for our Lord Jesus Christ. Confess our weakness. Confess, O God, that we are often overcome by life's troubles and the troubles of this world. And it seems to us that things are spinning out of control. Help us, O Lord, remind us of the strong angel. 
with his foot on the sea and the land, who towers over all things. Remind us of his power. Remind us of his strength and his mighty hand. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.